Hello and welcome to another edition of Crown Conversations. Today is going to be a little bit different. So I'm going to read off a list of the 16 people who were killed in 2020. Um, this may not be a complete list and to those who that I have missed, I apologize to their memory, to their family, to their friends. It's a little sad that I would be missing somebody because somebody was killed by the police. But today we will not be sticking to sports. Today I will have Matthew, Ooh. see if I can get his name right. <laughs> Matthew Estevis joining me from Raw Charge to talk about, well, not sticking to sports and the role that race relations plays in our hockey community. So, here's the list of people that I managed to find only from Wikipedia. It was difficult to find this list anywhere else of uh, people who have been killed by police so far this year. Joshua Downing, David Heek, Kerry Michael Bunsum, Lucas Alvarado, Ramiro Carrasco, Stephen Nuris, Michael Wallace, Raimundo Arancija, Brianna Taylor, Duncan Lemp, Tony McDade, George Floyd, Robert Johnson Jr., Gregory Howe, Sean Reed, and David McAtee, who was killed in an altercation with police in Louisville on June 1st, which is very sad to say. So to, ooh. Was I muted this whole time? I can't even tell if I'm muted. Matthew, if you're there, welcome. Matthew, can you hear me? Matthew. Oh. Sorry about that. I completely, sorry about the waiting room thing. I completely forgot that I, it's kind of an automatic thing now. And I was like, yeah, why no isn't Matthew here? Yeah, it's no big deal. Well, Matthew, welcome and thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So I'd like to welcome Matthew Estevis, who is from Raw Charge, and he is their in-arena reporter, as Acharya has told me. So welcome, Matthew. Thank you for having me, Robin. Is it Matt or Matthew? Uh, I prefer to go by Matt. Matt. All right. Well, obviously, it's no secret what has been going on around the U.S. lately. And I want to focus on, I want to make something clear that it's not about me. So this is not about my feelings today, but I want to talk about how race relations play a role in the hockey community and how this kind of relates to the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. So 
I assume based on your last name that you are Hispanic? Yes, I'm Puerto Rican. Puerto Rican, nice. How has Florida treated you? Um, so this whole race thing is, is, is an interesting situation for me because I'm one of the fortunate Hispanics who is rather light-skinned. Um, and I can probably pass off as like a Mediterranean um, ethnicity at times. Like I've had many people come to me and say, oh, you're, you look Italian. And I'm like, I'm, I'm full-blooded Puerto Rican. So I'm, I'm, both my parents are Puerto Rican. I'm second-generation American. Um, but I've been fortunate in that aspect to not have to deal with um, racism uh, in a way that actually like would have like denigrated me in any capacity. So I was fortunate, especially given the fact that I was raised in Charleston, West Virginia, before I came to Florida to finish uh, high school. And there, they just thought I, I mean, there, I guess there was some subtle racism, but it was more so they just, they were ignorant of what a Puerto Rican was. They just thought I was a mix of white and black. Um, but they never treated me differently. I was never um, held back by the way I looked. And I was, like I said, I was extremely fortunate compared to others. Um, and even during my time in the military, I was never stopped uh, or held back because of the way I looked. So again, in my personal experience, I have been very, very privileged because of my light complexion. Uh, that does not, however, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Oh, Lord. That does not devalue what's actually going on in this country and what has been going on in this country for well over 200 years. It's, it's uh, the black Americans in this country have been oppressed well before the country was even, you know, founded. And that's something that is not thought about well enough in this country. It is very much a, it's not affecting me. I don't care attitude that a lot of people in this country approach it with. And I feel as though that is, I don't want to say it's, uh, well, yeah, no, let me be bold about it. It's ignorant. It's callous. It's unempathetic. It's not giving a damn about your fellow American because, yes, we're all different colors and all type of stuff. But at the end of the day, we're all Americans, are we not? So, and that's the root thing. These people are simply claiming, treat us like you treat everybody else. And it's falling on a lot of deaf ears. And it's been falling on a lot of deaf ears for a very long time. And it, at this point, they're just like enough is enough. Sorry, tech issues. Um, I, it's 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 great that you have not been personally held back. I mean, my heritage is Filipino, so I well, it's Filipino and white. So you know, I, I got most of that light skinnedness from from my dad. So I, like you, I mean, I I have a heritage that I can fall back on that I'm fortunate enough does not hinder me in any way. But what, how can I be, so I guess the question is, it becomes, okay, I'm one of the fortunate people. How can I use my privilege as it were? Because it is a privilege. Because I, I am fortunate that if I get stopped by a cop, I probably don't have to worry about them shooting me within five seconds of giving me a command. So how can I take my privilege and use it for the better? Um, in this society, how we are today, it's just using that, that elevated privilege and voice to bring light 
to the situation that a lot of other Americans don't have that, um, I, well, black for a better term, don't have that privilege for. Um, I, I have a perfect example of this where, well, I wouldn't say perfect example, but I have an example of this where I was on my way to a game with my friend uh, who remained nameless, but he's African American. I've known him since the first day I joined the Navy. One of my best friends. I love him to death. But he lives in Orlando, so he came over and I took him to the game because he's never seen a hockey game. So I was like, dude, you want to come over and see a hockey game for the first time? He's like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. So he comes over, he hops in the car, we drive over towards the arena, but I'm speeding because I feel like I'm running late a little bit and I don't want to run into too much traffic. And a cop pulls me over. I'm like, oh crap, cop pulled me over. So I, I, I pull the car over, obviously, sit there. Cop, and no, I'm dressed up in my whole, you know, my media regalia, you know, I've got the suit on and everything. The cop looks over to me, asks for my information. I give him my information. He's like, you know, you were speeding, right? I was like, yeah, I know. I'm, I was just in a rush. I didn't want to run into too much traffic. You know, I told him the truth. And he looked, and, and I see this guy bend down, look inside the car and see my friend. And my friend looks at him and smiles and says, hi. The cop just kind of nods at him, looks at me. And then he kind of like, Walks away for about five minutes, checks, checks my ID, obviously. Comes back, and he's like, here you go, have a nice day. And I was like, I just looked at him. I was like, you just letting me go? He's like, yeah, I'm just letting you go. And then poof, on my way. And no, uh, you know, like I said before, my light skin kind of gives me, you know, a pass of being Hispanic, even though my last name is Estevez. And this, this cop just did me right there. If he had done that to my friend, I have no idea. I mean, my friend handled it perfectly fine. He's not really afraid of cops. Um, but that was one of the situations where I kind of felt like, you know, if I was a bit darker, you probably wouldn't be thinking about this to a certain extent, but it's, it's just one of the situations where it's like, you just need to, uh, well, by situation, I mean, where we are right now, it's, you have to just keep telling people of like, oh, it's not about race. Like, no, it very much is. This, this is a race in America that has been oppressed. It was enslaved for Christ's sake, you know, two centuries ago. And it's like, it, you know, they had to fight for everything they've gotten. Why do you think the 1960s happened? Why do you think Martin Luther King happened in the first place? Because they weren't being treated as equals. That's all they want. They just want to be treated as equals, you know? And people have now taken these protests, and there's a small percentage of people who have abused those protests to create riots and create chaos and to just completely turn the perspective of what this whole thing is about to something, oh, they're just crooks and thugs and yada, yada, yada. You know, and then we have, then we have our president do what he did last night, and it just does nothing but just pour gasoline on the fire. And the only thing we can do in a situation is just to keep repeating the same message: it's not about the rioters. Yes, that's wrong, and yes, looting is wrong, and no one is disputing that. But it, people who are just focusing on that are completely missing the point of what all of this is about. It's about a race of people in this country who have been oppressed for literal centuries and have had to fight for everything they've ever gotten to just be treated fairly. And I don't, see, I don't view that as something that should be denigrated or looked down upon. Like, yes, there are some – yes, there are plenty of whataboutisms, but this isn't the time for whataboutisms or contrarianism. It's about a, a people who have consistently, throughout the history of the United States, been at a disadvantage because of the color of their skin and because of what this country has kind of built itself up to be at this point. And again, Robin, just we have to we have to consistently just keep pushing the message out, whether it's on social media or with friends and family or just with colleagues, you have to keep pushing the thing of like, this is what they're pushing for. Like, yes, we condemn this because it is wrong. It is the rioting and the looting, 
But these protests, which for a lot of parts of the country, including here in Tampa, a lot of the protests down here in Tampa have been peaceful. There was some looting. There was some rioting, but those have mostly quelled out. And for Christ's sake, there's literal video out there about, of the mayor of Tampa and the police chief of Tampa walking with the protesters. That's what this is about. You know, it's not about the fires and the looting. That, that, is, that is very loud noise that's trying to pull your eyes away. What matters are these peaceful protesters going out there and actually trying to get a message out there. Because the reason why they're protesting is no one's listening. So they have to organize. They have to scream at somebody to make them listen. And that's what this is for. And the people who are just ranting about protesting in general, I'm like, have you not paid attention to how this country even became one became a country in the first place it was because of tyranny it was because of being misrepresented that was the whole reason that created this country like be protesting is, is as american as to breathe for christ's sake you know that's a really good way of putting it protesting is at the heart of this country i mean if you want to look at it another way so is theft to be honest i mean the indigenous people that have had their land stolen from them but i mean country-wise patriotically which you know is the root word for for country um okay not really i, I messed up the etymology there but anyway <laughs> patriotically it is patriotic it, it is good of your country to to, to, as you say, the American country, I can't speak today, as you say, the United States of America, when they were the, when they were the, still the colonies, when they were still a holding of Great Britain, they rioted, they, they rose up and they said, we will not take this anymore. So as, as you have pointed out, it is as American to protest something as a hot dog, as apple pie, which is really not even American, but that doesn't matter. I mean, all these things that you think are American, protesting is right there. So I want to ask you something. What? You're obviously media. I mean, you're sports media, but having worked as a credentialed media member, why is it that, in your opinion, we don't see the major cable news networks covering the the protests as they really are i mean i've looked at my local news and it is wall-to-wall -wall coverage of looting it is wall-to-wall -wall coverage of people destroying buildings destroying things but they're just they're just things i mean yeah it really sucks and and it's gonna have an economic impact but at the same time you can get stuff back it's just stuff Right? So, like, it, it doesn't, it's not the same as kneeling on somebody's neck for nine minutes. Yeah. Um, the reason why is because hate sells, if we're being dead honest. Like, it's one thing when you put, just put a peaceful protesters up. Ooh, excuse me. It's one thing when you put peaceful protesters on the screen. That's, that, that's one thing to send a message. But the, me the media, that the way that they are, and this is every media site. This isn't just, you know, Fox News and their propaganda spilling and all that type of stuff, or, you know, the leftist media pushing their agenda. It's all media is like this. They will they will put out there what's going to create the most clicks, the most views.
It's one thing when you see just regular protesters out there in the street just you know, peacefully protesting. It's another thing if you see violence happen because that draws attention. That draws people in to watch. That's why they push that so much because that's what creates clicks. So that's what clicks, well, clicks, views, and money for them. That's why. Is it wrong? Absolutely. But that's literally the beast that this nation created. So it's of our own doing. And the reason why people are so focused on looting and rioting is because America in general is one, a very selfish country, two, a very materialistic country, and three, in a lot of situations, they value materialistic stuff over actual life. Now, people will sit there and try to counter-argue with it, but if, you're, if your base idea is like, oh, the looting and the protest, the looting and the rioting and yada, 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 instead of the actual message of George Floyd and other oppressed African-Americans who have died unjustly in police custody, you're missing the point. You're completely missing the point. And it just it stems back to just the narrow-mindedness of a lot of Americans in this country. And, and we're all guilty of it. It's not just one sect of people. It's, it's we're all guilty of this in one way or another, whether, whether it's with, with this situation or another situation that might happen in sports or another situation that might happen with child abuse. Everyone is narrow-minded in some capacity. Where you the, the intelligent thing to do in that situation is to understand where your narrow-mindedness is and to realize the bigger picture. And the bigger picture here is police brutality and social injustice when it comes to African-Americans and people of color in general. That's the overarching purpose of this. It's being overshadowed because they don't want to face that. you know. And the media is complicit in it. They're completely complicit in it. Um, anyone who thinks otherwise is just kidding themselves, to be honest. But that's not to take away from journalists out there who are actually doing a good job. There's a lot of journalists out there, both nationally and locally, who are sh trying their damnness to tell you what's going on out there. You know, But at the same point, you have to show the peaceful protesters, and you also have to show the rioters and looters because that's part of the story as well. Is it as big as the actual peaceful protests? No. But – Rioters and looters are a negative, a massive negative that will spark a huge reaction out of people. And so that's what they're going to focus on. And that's, that is a massive part of the issue. I get that. I, I totally get all that. But I mean, there's so many videos that are surfacing on social media of people interacting with cops and cops behaving very badly. Um, I don't know if you saw this, but there was a video that went viral yesterday. I think it was yesterday or the night before, from the night before. I can't even tell because some of these aren't getting posted at the same time. But a cop was literally um, beating up on a, on a protester. And they took this person's hand and they put it on the baton and so that they would, this, this police officer would have an excuse to continue to literally punch and abuse this person who was on the ground. They were fighting not to put their hand on the baton, but the officer took, like physically took the hand and put it on his baton so that he can say, look, this guy was attacking me. It's my word against his. And of course, you know, the cop's always going to win. Yeah, that is – the bad thing is, is I, have, I have family members who are cops. I have friends who are cops. I have friends of friends who are cops, and this is – it's a difficult topic because cops are – they inherently want to protect each other regardless if they're good or bad, which is an issue. 
that that in itself is an issue. Like police and police defenders cannot sit here and say that police brutality is not a thing. It very much is a thing. It has been a thing in this country for a very, very long time. And to dispute that is to just plead blissful ignorance and live your little life away from actual reality, which is a very another gigantic issue in this damn country. Regardless, police brutality is a thing. Is it as rampant as a lot of people want to say? I don't believe it's. I don't believe it's as rampant. Is it a serious issue? Absolutely, it is. Do does the police force in this country need to be addressed in some capacity in how they handle things? Absolutely, because there's there's literally no excuse. There's absolutely no excuse why a police officer should do that. There's absolutely no excuse for any of the things I've seen on social media or anything of these cops literally just beating people for no reason. People who are just standing there minding their business. I literally saw this one, this one video of this, of this dude literally just walking across the street to go to his car. And then a cop just grabs him out of nowhere and starts dragging him. And I literally saw people say, oh, well, he's resisting arrest. I was like, he got grabbed from the back and fell down. What the hell do you want him to do? He just was walking, minding his own damn business. What business does the cop have to grab him? Cops don't have the right to do that. They don't. No matter what you think. If you think that, you're an imbecile in my opinion. I don't care. You're an imbecile. You know, but you need to hold cops accountable. They are not judge, jury, and executioner. They're there to protect and serve. They're not protecting or serving the people. They're protecting and serving their own interests. And police unions are just as much to blame for this because they'll sit there and just defend a cop till the sky turns freaking black because they care more about themselves than they do about the people they're supposed to protect. You know, and that's a that's a blanket statement. That's not really picking and choosing people because I've talked to cops who are just like, no, what happened there is absolutely bull, is absolute bull and that person should be in jail. All of them should be in jail. You know, I've talked to cops who are like that. I've also talked to cops who try to reason about, oh, well, this, 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 this. And I'm like, are you full of like, are you full of crap? Are you serious right now? You know, like you, you need to have those difficult conversations. And if you keep trying to hide behind excuses, you're perpetuating the brutality you're perpetuating the violence you know and not addressing it is contributing to the problem like you have to have those hard discussions because if you don't have those hard discussions no progress can be made yeah um i'm beginning to feel that instead of a few bad apples it's more like the whole barrel is rotten and there's the occasional good apple because i mean i i also have I have a cousin who was in the military, um, and once he got out, he decided to become a cop. And, you know, I think that suits him perfectly, and, and it's, it's, it's great. And at heart, I know he's a great person. And I don't believe that he would use excessive force. And he's shared stories where he says he's trying to de-escalate a situation. It's a tough situation that he can be put in. And, and I feel for cops. I do, because they have to arrive somewhere and they have to be prepared to do so many things. And it can be an especially dangerous place or dangerous situation when they arrive. I mean, if they're called to somewhere where there's like domestic violence happening or if there's a car accident, you never know how somebody's going to react. But back to my point is that he was sharing stories about how his partner was kind his first partner when he first joined um when he first became a police officer his partner at the time i don't know if he still has his partner but um you know they're the kind of trigger happy person who's like super pro trump and was all about um like sharing kind of racist rhetoric and he's like that's not cool like don't don't say that stuff 
but you have these people who are in law enforcement and it's it's kind of an open secret i don't even know if it's secret anymore but um white supremacy groups actively recruit and um get people to sign up to become law enforcement i mean we've seen so many things from various law enforcement agencies around the country of law enforcement officers flashing white power signs and people going, eh, that's funny. I mean, other cops. So I'm beginning to really feel like the the few good cops who are out there are very few and far between. But I mean, again, I have to say that this is my privilege to say this. And it's unfortunate that, you know, a black person, a black person of color is not able to to make that judgment. They cannot look at a cop and go, oh, you're probably a good guy. It's okay. Like, I, I mean, it just really, I have to reiterate that this is definitely my privilege and I'm trying to, I'm trying to use my privilege and my platform to, to better myself, but I don't really know how. Yeah, it's, the entire situation is just depressing when you think about it. It really is. And the fact that these acts by police and certain politicians are just being enabled by other people is – it's tiring. It's tiring. It's absolutely tiring. And it's, it's something that just – people want to be willfully ignorant. If it doesn't affect them, they don't care, which harks back to my previous statement of Americans in general are selfish. This country has always been selfish, and it's something that this country will continue to try to perpetuate until someone finally breaks through and actually makes this country face a lot of the ugly history that it has, which also <laughs> – yeah, our history. Oh, boy. You mean our whitewashed history and our history books, not actually <laughs> talking about history. It's just – the country needs to actually look at what it actually is. And this country has had a long and ugly history of dealing with people of color. It's not even just African-Americans. It's Asians. It's Hispanics. It's Native Americans. It's anyone who's not white, essentially. They, are, they have all been subjugated to some kind of oppression in any capacity. But they don't want to face that. They don't want to be like, oh, that was the past. And it's still happening to this day. It's just happening in a manner that, you know, oh, it's not as bad. It doesn't matter if it's as bad. The Constitution says, <clears throat> the Constitution promotes that all men are created equal. All men, as in mankind. It doesn't matter what your color is. It doesn't matter what gender you are. It doesn't matter what kind of sexuality you are. You're a human being, which is something that a lot of people in this country and also the world have forgotten. We are human beings. Okay. First and foremost, does you're a human being first. Okay. Then we can deal with what nationality you are. Not that that, not that that matters to begin with, but regardless, at the end of the day, you are a human being. Would you want to be treated like that? I'm assuming you wouldn't. So why are you perpetuating that? Why are you being blindly ignorant to it? Why are you making excuses for it? You're an embarrassment. That's what those people are. They're an embarrassment. I saw this amazing video that went viral. Um, oh gosh, my 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 memory is absolutely terrible. I cannot remember the name of the of the woman who said this, but I don't know if you've seen this. But she was addressing a crowd of people, and at the end of her 
her lecture or, or at, sorry, at the end of her um, speech or whatever that she was giving, she asked them, she said, she said, okay, to all the white people in here, I want you to stand up if you want to be treated like a black person. Nobody stood up. She says, I don't think you understood me. I want you to stand up and if you want to be treated the exact same way that black people are treated to the stereotypes, to being followed around, to all of this, you know, brutality that they face and nobody stood up. And she goes, so if you acknowledge that it's happening, why are you letting it happen? And it's just like the most incredible video. And it's something that's just been kind of echoing in my brain in the it last- just, It just reinforces blind ignorance, blissful ignorance. Oh, I don't know about it, it's not my problem. Oh, I don't know about it, it's not my problem. That's, that, that's literally what that thing perpetuates, you know? Blissful ignorance. Yep. It's funny because this is slightly off topic, but I've been talking to my parents who were both in the boomer generation and they very much entail a lot of the negative stereotypes of boomers. And so, I mean, they just kind of cloak themselves in their privilege and they don't want to acknowledge it. And then they say, well, you know, it's fine. You know, these people are just they're being bad, they're being bad actors, you know, it's like, and I try to steer them and I, I say, you know, this is, this is not true. And it's like, but unfortunately they just, they won't listen. They, it doesn't affect them. It doesn't affect them personally. I mean, it's like the, the pandemic, they're not really that affected. So they, they want to focus on other things like the economy. They don't care about other people dying. You know, it's kind of like, oh, well, you know, the flu happens. 60,000 people are killed from the flu every year. And it's like, so it's, it's kind of the same way, I think, that we talk about race and Black people. It's like, why is it that it's always the other person's fault? Why is it nothing that I can do? Why is it nothing that, in this case, police can do? Why is it that they refuse to use de-escalation tactics? Because the police in this country have never had to be held accountable to that extent. That's that's it's simple as that. And police will sit there and say, "Oh no, we're held accountable." Well, if you're held accountable, why did it take days for that man who killed George Floyd to be arrested? That man should have been arrested on the spot. There's no excuse for that. There's literal video of him just sitting on this guy's neck. You're the police. You're supposed to protect and serve. And not even the fact that man was freaking arrested for a, a fake twenty dollar bill. Are you serious? Why, like, why did that escalate to that point? Like, the guy probably didn't even know he had a fake $20 bill, but because he's black, you'd be like, oh, I bet he did. If that's your first reaction because of that situation, mm, you might want to look in the mirror and have some introspective <laughs> thoughts. You might want to look in the mirror. Yeah, I mean, he was killed over $20. Like killed over a fake $20 bill that he might or might not have even knew it was fake. It's $20. Who cares? It's $20. Like, I understand that for the shop owner, I, I mean, I don't understand why they called the police, but even if he willfully tried to pass off a $20 bill, a counterfeit $20 bill, that is not justifiable to kneel on his neck for nine minutes and slowly kill him. Homicide is not justified over $20. Homicide is not justified because 
somebody may have been using your apartment without your knowledge. I mean, it's just, it's, you can't even breathe while black in this country. It's just, uh, like I said, it's tiring. It's depressing. It's just, uh... All right, so it's difficult, but you're, you're active in your community. So what can we do, Matt? What, how can I use my platform? How can I use my privilege to help people, to help spur reform? Because I'm as tired of seeing people killed as people are of being killed. And I say this from a very privileged standpoint. So I, I say, you know, it, I don't have to worry about being in my house and police kicking down my door and killing me while I sleep. That is now something that Black people in this country have to worry about. Well, it's probably something they've always had to worry about. Police wrongfully, unlawfully entering their home and killing them for being Black. So what can I do to help change happen? You just got to go out there. Not even kidding. You just, you got to go out there and protest with them. That, that it's, it's as simple as that. You need, to, you need to amplify their voices. You need to go out there and you need to protest with them, peacefully, obviously, and just keep spreading the message. I mean, I, I've basically been like dark on social media ever since the NHL uh, paused the season because I'm just like, I, there's nothing to talk about hockey right now, you know? And so I've just kind of just put it to the side. And so, but like I've, you know, I, I, I've been out there. I've been talking to all my um, African-American friends and even my other you know, um, people of color, friends, talking to them, seeing how they're doing, just letting them know that I'm there, you know, like I'm just a, I'm just a blogger in, you know, West central Florida. Like I don't have a whole, I have like no power, but what I can do is be by their side because I, you know, I know if I was a couple shades darker, I guarantee you, you know, something probably would have happened to me. But like I said, I'm fortunate that I'm light skinned. Regardless, the only thing we can do is just amplify their voices, be there for them, go out there and protest with them, you know? Now, if things obviously go sour and, you, you know, people in that protest start getting violent out of nowhere, then, yeah, you need, to, you need to clamp that down. But I've seen numerous protests here from friends and also just in local media here that have been perfectly peaceful. There's also been rioting and looting. I'm not going to dispute that, and it's absolutely wrong. But there's been a lot more good than all of that. The problem is, is just the bad attracts a lot more attention and attracts a lot more outrage. And that's what the media is about, no matter what side they're on. Because it sells. Violence sells, like you it said. Sells. All right. Well, I want to shift focus now to the NHL. Um, <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> um, Austin Matthews. He's the only Latino American, I think, that's actually in the NHL. Is that correct? No, I think there's others. I'm pretty sure there's a guy in Phoenix who's Hispanic. I think he's the only one who was like self-identified as actually Hispanic. I mean, I mean, I I don't know about that. I'm pretty sure there's more than just Matthews, though. I'm I'm pretty. I've talked to one of my friends who's in Arizona. I'm pretty sure the Coyotes have a Hispanic player as well. I'm pretty sure. (laughs) I think I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure it's Vinny Hinestroza. I'm pretty sure Vinny Hinestroza is still in the Coyote. Hinestroza. Is, wait, where is he playing now? I thought he was still in Tampa. No, Henestrosa was never in Tampa. He was in Florida. Oh, but the Cats, the Fancy Cats. Yes, the Panthers. Yeah, he's he's with Arizona right now. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
but it's, I mean, it's like you can count on one hand the number of Latinx or Hispanic players. Like, there's two, maybe three of them. Like, it's a little bit. Yeah, Henestros is Ecuadorian. Ecuadorian, okay. Yeah. Uh, outside of those two, I don't know of anyone else who I actively know who is Hispanic. Off the top of my head. I had to go dig. I don't know off the top of my head. Well, actually, crap. Is Bryce Salvador still playing? I think he retired, actually. The old defenseman for the uh, Devils. But I'm pretty sure he retired years ago. Okay, I'm going to ask the chat. Hold on. Oh, yeah. Bryce Salvador quit playing uh, back in 2015, so five years ago. And he's he was Brazilian-Ukrainian. That's what he was. I think there have been more indigenous First Nations players than there have been Hispanic slash Latinx players. Uh, I'd ha- again, I don't know off the top of my head. The big, the biggest player aside from Austin Matthews, who was probably of Hispanic descent, was probably Scott Gomez from the '90s and the early 2000s, and yeah. actually the early 2010s. Um, but I don't know off the top of my head. I mean, I know that I know there are very small. Per very very small percentage, but Austin Matthews is most definitely the most high profile one. That, the most accurate thing for him, he he's the most high profile Latin American player in the NHL. He is definitely that, but he is still. I don't want to bash him and say that he's whitewashed, but he kind of is. I mean, I'll 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 say it myself. I'm whitewashed. I was raised in Charleston, West Virginia, for Christ's <laughs> sake. I mean, I, I I don't I have ne- I was raised um, in a very non-traditional Hispanic manner. My mother was raised in a very traditional Hispanic manner, and she made it the point to not raise me that way. So, and my mother raised me. Whenever someone says, you know, "Who raised you?" It's my mother. I'm not saying my parents. I mean, my parents are divorced now, but it's not like they had a terrible marriage or my father was a terrible father. But my father was very much right wing to the point where I was brainwashed like that for a, quite a while until I got out and lived my own life, and I realized, oh, this this is nonsense. This is complete propaganda nonsense. Um, but I was raised by my mother, and my mother raised me in a very much manner of non-traditionalism when it comes to Hispanics. In the Hispanic household, the husband pretty much rules everything. My mother pretty much did everything when I was growing up. My father really didn't. My father was just nothing more than a provider. My mother did everything. My mother's the one who disciplined us. My mother's the one who um, was always there for us no matter what. My mother was the one who always made time for us regardless of what was going on. Um, And my mother is still there to this day. Um, I don't talk to my father too often. We got into a really huge argument about gay marriage because my one of my siblings is gay, um, and he just for some reason was being blatantly ignorant about it. And I just I, I went off on him because you know he has a child who is you know gay, so I found it hypocritical. Um, so we don't really talk that much about stuff like that. Um, but regardless, I mean, I'm whitewashed, so I don't think it's bad to say that Matthews is more than likely whitewashed as to some capacity because I'm whitewashed as a Hispanic. I mean, he has an O in his name. It's kind of funny. I mean, <laughs> just I mean, just the spelling of it—it it just seems very whitewashed to me. And I don't want to like dump on his parents or anything. I don't know his family, so I don't want to say negative things about them but hockey is such a whitewashed sport oh yes in general so i I found a list but this is from 2018-2019 so this list is about a year old and these are the players of color 
who have made the team roster. Um, so it was Kyler Yamamoto, who is, I think, of Japanese descent. Mm -hmm. um, P.K. Subban, obviously. Seth Jones. Cristobal Bu Nieves. Um, let's see. Max Pacioretty. Matt Nieto. Andreas Martinson. J.T. Brown. Alec Martinez, although he's kind of, he's really more white than anything. Um, no, I mean, if, if, if he has any kind of ethnicity in him, then he is, it, that's a weird oh, thing with him too. It. That's what I'm saying. It's like, he doesn't really acknowledge the Hispanic side of his heritage. I mean, he said his family is really more white. And then like his grandmother, I think he said was French or something. And that's where his name Alec came from. French or French Canadian? I can't remember. Oh, I, 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 you know, I knew Pacioretty was something other than white, but I didn't realize he actually has Mexican descent. Oh, I didn't realize that either. Yes, his mother is Mexican. Oh, okay. Let's see, Madison Bowie, Malcolm Subban, T.J. Oshi, Devonte Smith, Pelly, Ryan Reeves, Austin Matthews, as we've said, Evander Kane, Wayne Simmons, Mika Zabinajad. P.K. Subban, as I said, Carey Price, who has First Nations in his um, heritage, Jordan Greenway, Darnell Nurse, Ethan Bear, Brandon Montour, Kyle Akposo, Anthony Duclair, Yuri Yurhar Kaira. He plays for the Oilers. I'm sure I totally butchered his name. Sorry, dude. Yeah, he, he has, I believe he's of Indian descent. Yeah, Trevor Daly, Jamal Smith, uh, Matt Dumba, Nazem Kadri, Pierre-Edouard Belmar, and Matthew Joseph, who was playing for the Bolts. I don't know if he still is. Uh, he is still in the organization, but last, uh, when play was still going on, he was currently with the Crunch. Okay. Yeah, so, I mean, I think that list is, what, 15, maybe 20 names long? It's not a very big list. It's, 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 it's by no means a stretch to state that hockey is a very whitewashed sport, primarily due part to the, where the sport originated from and also, the fa and also the monetary thing of hockey is a very expensive sport to get into just in general, which is an issue that is permeated throughout, the, throughout Canada and the United States when it comes to youth hockey. It is ridiculous how expensive hockey is. I've had uh, friends who complain. So my friend is, um, she's trying, sorry, her daughters are playing hockey. And she was saying that like hockey, so hockey skates, one of them wants to become a goalie, which is extraordinarily expensive as it is. But when you have a kid, and you know how fast, I don't, I don't know if you know personally, but I mean, kids just grow so quickly. And like from the beginning of the school year to the end of the school year, on average, kids will change their shoe size probably once, maybe twice. Um, because, you know, they, they grow so much. And so when you're trying to get goalie skates and pads and then a helmet for someone who's going from when they start when they're like six years old, it's not going to last when they're eight years old because they're just, the, the equipment's going to be far too small and you're paying $500 for goalie skates. Like that's kind of obscene. Yeah. It's, I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, everyone who's a part of hockey knows that hockey is an absurdly expensive sport, especially for goaltenders. And I mean, the thing about, I mean, it's one thing at, at my age, but it's another thing when a kid's growing up, you know, the most expensive things you're going to buy are the skates, the gloves, the stick, 
um, I mean, the pads, if you're dealing with a, um, a goalie, obviously, but most player kids are going to be players. And so it's skates, gloves, and stick. Helmets honestly aren't that bad if you know where you're looking. But chest pads aren't that bad. Uh, like everything else with it is not that bad. It's just the cumulative total of everything is a fair bit. You know, if you want a bargain hunt, you can probably get everything for three to five hundred dollars, give or take. I mean, shoot, when I bought all my stuff, when I started playing again after I got out of the military back in 2016, I mean, shoot, I think I spent about five maybe four fifty five hundred dollars on everything. And no, I mean, I've bought God knows how many sticks over the years because I've snapped them or just wanted to grab another one or something like that. I still have the same hockey skates I bought all the way back in 2016. You know, skates will usually last you a while, especially at my age. But when, it, it's, a, when it's a kid, you know, oh, shoot, you know, the kid's going to grow, obviously. Um, but it's also the price of, you know, getting a kid into getting a kid into a team. Some of these teams – you know, some of these organizations out there charge arm and a leg for their kid to be a part of something. And it's absurd to a certain extent. And down here, it's, it's a weird dynamic down here because for one ice is more expensive down here in general, just because, you know, demand is, demand is awkward down here. Demand, the demand for the rings, at least in the Tampa area is surprisingly high because a lot of people want to play. So that kind of pushes the price up. Also the fact that the machines down here keep the ice cool, they run at a higher capacity because of the Florida heat, especially during the summer, you know, and the program that I deal with, which is I, I work with the uh, Clearwater ice storm down here. I deal, I work with John Tucker and some other coaches when it comes to helping out uh, minors and majors and squirts for hockey coaching. And I, I don't feel like their prices are absurd, but I'm still, when I heard the price, I was like, Ooh, man, I'm not, I don't have a kid right now. Yeah. It's, it's kind of, ridiculous but I mean in California at least because the the Kings and the Ducks and the Sharks have been so active in their communities and you know giving them free equipment and everything to get them started it helps a lot but I mean of course that doesn't go towards even how much you have to pay for ice time like how and and you know Southern California is, is quite similar to Florida, except for the fact that we have probably about a third of the humidity. No, not even. Like, we have maybe 10% of Florida's humidity in Los Angeles. I'm not kidding. Like, in, in the dry months, it's like 10% humidity. Yeah. Whereas Florida is like 100% humidity. Florida, Florida's humid. The entire South is humid. <laughs> not just Florida. The entire South is humid. They're all, they're all operating at 100% humidity all the time. That explains a lot of things. Um, but anyway, so it's it helps now in 2020 that over the last 20 years, the NHL teams have been active in the community and giving free equipment to get them started, which helps other parents because they're like, hey, my kid grew out of this. We used it for one season. Do you want to use it? So that helps a lot, obviously. But I mean... California is kind of special, shall we say? So we have a lot of extra taxes and things cost a little bit more here. And, you know, especially, so like, I think we have the highest gas in the contiguous United States, the highest price of gas in the contiguous United States. We're usually on average a dollar higher than the national average. So if you think about that, if you're paying a dollar more for fuel for your car, now you got to shuttle your kids back and forth to hockey and 
all these other things. And I know when you have kids, it's like, well, you're going to do that with sports all the time. I totally get that. But at the same time, if you have a house with a small yard or any patch of greenery or whatever, you can tell your kids, hey, go outside and practice with the soccer ball, football, you know, um, toss the ball around. You can't really play hot mini sticks in the house, not at least not in California. <laughs> we don't have basements. We don't, I mean, not many places here have basements either. <laughs> well, there are some, there are some, but not very many. Well, Florida is too soft. To, I mean, the, because it's like limestone. So it, it's yeah. really. Well, <laughs> yeah, limestone, more like packed sand. <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, limestone is a very, very, very soft stone. It like, it crumbles to the touch basically. So when you say it's basically packed sand, yeah. <laughs> packed sand might be more. <laughs> might be harder than limestone. Yeah, I've... <laughs> but, I mean, so it's, you know, how do you get them to the rink? How, how can you practice on your own? Because I saw... I saw, so during this pandemic, you know, all the parks and stuff were closed. At least they were here. Because, again, you know, California is very special. Um... But, you know, I saw people still going out and with their families and stuff, still practicing in little patches of greenery that they could. Um, or when the parks were reopened, they were still out there practicing with their soccer nets. And it's, my point is, sports that are not as niche as hockey, they're easier to practice for kids. So I feel like it's not as difficult I feel like if I was a kid, or if it, sorry, if I feel like I was, I was a parent, I'd probably steer my kids towards something else a little bit easier. <laughs> She'd be like, here, you got a soccer ball? You got some pads? Great. I mean, at least down here with my experience with the parents I've talked to with their kids and even my friends who had their kids on teams who are co-coaches with me, like I talked to them, Hey, you know, what do you, what are you guys doing since you know, you can't be on the ice because of this pandemic stuff like that. And they've got stuff at home to help them, you know, practice their stick handling and stuff like that. And skating off skating is skating and vision is like the two biggest things that are really hard to replicate off the ice, but you can work on skills while you're at home. And a lot of parents who actually, you know, want to, put their kids I want to say ahead but they want to give their kids you know a good shot at you know enjoying the sport they'll give them the opportunity at home to do stuff with you know those little things you can bring at home like those little the little fake ice pads you can stand on um the the little pass the little sauce pass things you can mess with the bounce back things you can practice shooting with the nets at home I know plenty of uh families who have stuff like that and those are relatively inexpensive too they really aren't that expensive just to have your kid do with that and especially to keep your kid busy too during this situation you know, uh, it, it's, it's been a great thing to just have them do that to keep them busy. Um, I wish I could do that. I live in, I, I live with my girl in a one bedroom apartment. We just don't have the damn space. Um, <laughs> but, but when it comes to keeping the kids busy, when it comes to hockey and keeping them kind of like engaged to a, to a certain extent, I, I at least here it, with my personal experience, the parents and my friends have done a really good job at keeping their kids, you know, engaged with it to a certain extent. Nowhere near as much as they would be on the ice, obviously, but it's still something. And now, you know, since the middle of last month in May, 
we've slowly been doing more private rentals at the rink we practice at and getting them out there and just, you know, going through the motions of getting them back on the ice and stuff like that. Cause we were supposed to start spring training back in March, but <laughs> Corona. So that's been a, like I said, it, it, with my personal experience, I feel like the parents um, have done a really good job at keeping their kids engaged with the sport, even though they're not actually like on the ice as much as they normally would be. And I know that is very much a, a, a privileged thing to say because of where I'm at, but I feel like there's a lot more families throughout the country who have been able to kind of find a way to get through it when it comes to that type of stuff. Um, than families who are just kind of left out to dry. Now I'm not saying that they're they're not out they're not left to dry, but I feel like given the given the given the amount of resources that are out there and relatively cheap resources too for to keep to have kids work on certain skills while they're at home and also, you know, since we're in the age of social media, you know, you can put your kid on social media and then all of a sudden they're a hit and now the kid has that positive reinforcement where he wants to do it again and makes them want to try to get better with it. So I feel like we're in a better situation when it comes to the kids not being able to play right now with what they can do at home to keep some, keep some skills up. Obviously there's other things that can distract them, but at the same point it's on the parents to reinforce that. So I feel like it's a, it's a situation that has to be taken kind of like on a, I don't know, I guess on a community level, because like I said, in my community, it's been fine with our kids you know, obviously there's, there was rust when they got out there, but for the most part, they've been just fine. None of our kids, even the kids who have, you know, less fortunate families, they've been fine. Thank God. Um, but again, I can only speak from my own personal experience. All right. So we talked about making, so we talked about accessibility in hockey, but how much does, and I have to bring it back to this because we have been talking about our privilege so much, but how much do race relations play a role in this? Because, I mean, we, we've seen it with P.K. Subban that he just brings out the worst vitriol in people, which is awful. I mean, I don't know how much Austin Matthews has gotten hate, but I feel like it's really, really just, <laughs> I hate to say this, but I mean, I really feel like it really comes down to the Black players. They, they are the ones who are always getting the most crap said to them thrown at them i mean like like we like we said earlier hockey is a very whitewashed sport so of course when any african-american makes any kind of statement they're always gonna get that vitriol because hockey does have a racist side to it if anyone says it doesn't they're just being blissfully blind because they don't want to face the actual truth Is is it is it rampant I wouldn't say it's rampant. Is it there? Absolutely. Is it far? Is it there as bad as it was way back in the day, like the 80s, 70s, 60s? No, it's not to that extent. Um, what it is now is there's a very loud subset of people who just they hate seeing people like that in hockey, or if they, if, if, or if they don't even, it's not even like they don't like seeing them play. It's like when they open their mouth, and that's a problem, and that's a problem that hockey has struggled with for a while now and a lot of team statements that have come out have some have been very just wow really and some have been actually surprisingly good like the Bruins for instance the Bruins took forever to say something but when the Bruins came out and say something they were one of like the only teams who actually used George Floyd's name and actually used murder in their actual statement and I was like holy crap the Bruins did something extremely well when it came to their statement whereas the lightning statement just was kind of was among the weaker ones 
you know, and the St. Louis Blues statement was one of the weaker ones. And many teams were very – the Islanders statement was extremely weak. Other teams have done a very good job. The Leafs did a good job. The Bruins did a surprisingly good job on their statement. Um, but teams in general are – and but the counterpoint, that teams are also put in a very, very difficult situation. Like, how are they supposed to address this? You know, because many teams also – proudly flew out the blue lives matter flag and a lot of pregame ceremonies, the lightning being one of them. And, you know, they're, they're stuck between this, this rock and a hard place, but at the same point, who are you going to sit with? Are you going to sit with the people who actually support you? Or are you going to sit with, you know, an, you know, a group of, well, not a group of an organization that has shown a propensity to be brutal to the citizenry for literally no reason, you know, and then we go to the players, the player statements, where a lot of them were pretty bad. And then Taves, Jonathan Taves' statement came out, and his statement was actually quite fantastic, honestly. And now we're just seeing players basically copy and paste Taves' statement and just move things around. You know, it doesn't feel, I don't know, I want to say genuine, but it feels like a lot of players, and Blake Wheeler, I know he's been pretty active on social media talking about it, and a sense of Blake's never had to really kind of address it. And he's kind of now sitting back and kind of like just listening and understanding the situation. And he's actually said some pretty wise things overall that I think a lot of players try to echo, but there's a lot of players out there who just don't give a damn. They really don't, or they just want to continue being on with their blissful ignorance. And that's, mm, it's a hard pill to swallow, but not one that's really surprising to me because again, this is a very whitewashed sport that has, and this is also a sport that vehemently, hate change or any kind of progress i mean this sport despises progress in any capacity it's that's why this this sport moves at a glacial pace you know um and i feel like we have to take the team's responses just kind of like a oh okay you know like take it up i expect the bare minimum out of you and we're barely getting the bare minimum out of some organizations excuse me um and I feel like we need to lean more on the players. We need to hold the players a bit more accountable. Well, I wouldn't say accountable. Well, yeah, no, accountable in a sense of you need to say something, you know, especially given the fact that a, a lot, you know, you have a, there's a lot more players of color in the league now, you know? I mean, the first Lightning player who said anything was Matthew Joseph, you know? And the only players who have said anything on the Lightning, on the actual Lightning roster is Steven Stamkos, who didn't say anything till today. Pat Maroon said something late yesterday. And the Ryan, and the, well, former Lightning, the Ryan Callahan Foundation, said something and that's it we haven't heard any i mean alex kaloran posted the instagram blackout tuesday on instagram at least i saw i'm sure other players have but when it comes to social activism out of the players it's very much a expect the bare minimum don't expect anything to really floor you in my opinion i mean credit where credit is due from jonathan taves he wrote such a heartfelt message. I was just honestly blown away by that. But at the same time, it's such a fine line to walk because we have this privilege, white people and, and us light-skinned folks who can pass, uh, pass as white, we have this privilege. So should we say something? Because it's not about us. So what do we say? When should we say it? And I think personally, that's where, that's one area where I'm struggling because I don't want to be that person who has performative um, activism. I want to actually genuinely help. 
and I don't want it to also look like I'm trying to be a hero. I'm not a white savior. This is not about me. I understand that. So how can I help? How can I say something without firstly making myself trying to look better, but secondly, actually at the same time, amplifying and lifting up those voices around me that need to be heard. I mean, you say that players should be held accountable and then they should make statements, which, you know, I'm kind of on the fence about. Um, I personally did not post a black square on my Instagram today or on my Twitter because I felt like it's more performative activism. I mean, that's just me personally. And, you know, everybody is different. But I felt like whoever needs to see this, whoever needs to understand the message behind this Blackout Tuesday, they're not going to see it on my Instagram. They're not going to see it on my Twitter. So I didn't feel like it would make a difference for me to post it. But I do want to say something. I want to speak up. I want to be able to say, hey, this is wrong. Or, hey, you know, this person over here, they're saying something really great. So when is it appropriate to use my platform to say, to speak up and say something? And, and what should I say? Uh, it's, I mean, I have to, no offense to you, Robin, but I really do feel like we're just kind of saying the same thing over and over. <laughs> because I, I, like, I understand, I, I understand what you're asking. It's the base question of what do people like us who come from a level of privilege do? And like I said earlier, we just need to amplify their voices. We need to stand by them. You know? Yeah, but I mean, like I said, I mean, it's just, when should, I guess it's, it's always, it's that fine line of, you know, of, of white priv of white people and and the white the light skinned people it's 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 such a fine line of when you say something and and when when it becomes performative activism because I think people can genuinely mean it but then nothing really happens. We, we should also take into account that some people. I mean, I mean, this probably could be viewed as a cop-out because I kind of feel it's a cop-out too. But I feel like we need to kind of cover all the bases. That's pretty much. There's a lot of people in this country who are non-confrontational, and that's about the most you can expect out of them, which is better than not saying anything, if we're being honest. But there's also people who are much more aggressive, you know, and that's perfectly fine. Uh, but again, it just it just harks back to the idea – not the idea, I'm sorry. Um, it just harks back to what I was saying earlier. Is just we, we have to amplify voices in that community. We have to support them. We have to get their message across. And for some people, they can do no better than just sharing something. And that's all they can do, or that's all they're willing to do, which we can get into that whenever. But, you know, any kind of outreach is, is good outreach. Even if it's the bare minimum, it's at least something that's pushing it forward. The issue is, the issue is when it comes to um, – is when people are doing it falsely or just doing it just to be popular, you know, doing it just for the likes, just for the wheat tweets, just for the little heart emojis on Facebook, you know that's where the problem lies and that's where it comes to actually knowing who those people are like if if you know someone who has called out people for racist nonsense before and post something about that you know they're honest about it but if you know somebody who's made some jokes here or there or who like doesn't really give a damn about them because they don't deal with them in any way shape or form or they purposely try to stay away from them and they post the type of stuff you know they're just doing it for the clout and that's a and right there is a very fine line of understanding like who is who and that kind of comes down to you know who you know and who they know 
you know, I've been fortunate with, with a lot of my friends that when they share something like that, I know it's, I know it's genuine. You know, I know some of them are extremely non-confrontational and them even doing that in general is like, oh crap, that's a huge step even for them. And I think we have to give people like that a certain level of credit, not a ton, but just a, just a small amount because, you know, this, this, this situation needs every kind of support it can get, whether it's the minute support or people really pushing it forward. You know, you need that in any way, shape or form and to condemn them for just doing the bare minimum, I feel as though it kind of makes them go, well, what am I, you know, it's going to make them feel very, very reticent to actually do it in the future. That's a really good point. And I think that's kind of where, you know, that fine line comes in because, you know, it's, is it the bare minimum that they can do? Yes. Should they do more? Maybe, probably, yes. But I don't know. I, I mean, I, re- I really, I don't, I don't have a good answer, but I, I find it interesting because, you know, we laud Jonathan Taves for what he posted. And I think it is a well-deserved um, lauding, um, well-deserved praise. And, and I hope that he genuinely means it. And, and I hope that this genuinely changes his opinion because it just was the video that he posted. I don't know if you actually watched the video, um, but the video that he posted on his Instagram was just so eye-opening in my opinion, because the, it was a, it was three black men. And so it, one was 42, 31 and 15 or 16. Um, the 31 year old was confronting, I think he was 45, but doesn't matter. He was confronting the older man. And he said, cause the older man was angry. He said, and, and he said, why are you doing this? And the older man said, I'm tired. I'm tired of this. And, and I mean, they just, they went back and forth and the younger man kept saying, he said, I understand. I totally understand. I'm right there with you. I am angry too. And he pulled this this teen over and he, he was kind of in his face about it, but this young man was listening very intently to everything that this 31-year-old man was saying. And he said, look at this, look around you. And uh, I was here four years ago when we were marching. Nothing has changed. Now it is up to you. You have to come up with a better way because this isn't working. So, I mean, it's just the whole video, it, it just is so incredible to watch because they have nothing left. They are emotionally spent. They are physically spent. They're spiritually broken. The system has broken them. This is all they have left to give. And it's nothing, there's nothing left to give. So, I mean, it's just, it's such a powerful video and I'm, and I'm very grateful that Taves shared it. And I really hope that it, it is, I, I hope it gets to people. I hope they see this and say, okay, now I understand. I understand what they've been saying this whole time. And, and it helps bring on that change. Yep. I, I mean, I, I have nothing else to add to that. Like you, yeah, I agree with everything you just said. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, obviously, so what I'm going to do is I will post some resources in the body of, um, 
um, this post where this is going so that people can find ways to start helping because we have to do more than just hope, Matt. Hope yeah. is gone. Yeah. There's no more time for hope. Now's yeah. the time for action. Yeah. I completely agree with you on that one. All right. So I guess one thing that we can do, even within our own hockey communities, just call out the racist stuff. Say, that's not cool. We cannot allow this to stand anymore. We cannot sit idly by. If somebody says something racist, we have to say, that's racist. And we have to say, that's not cool to say. How would you like it if we used your name as a racial slur, as your skin tone and say, ooh, the whiteies, you know, all they, they're, they're no good. You clutch your purse when you walk across the street from them, you know? I think Just, that's the, uh, the, the the plain thing is is if you see it, confront it, squash it. Yes. It's it's as, it's as simple as that. There's no if answer. It's just you see it, you squash it right there. Especially if it's around kids. If you see it with the kids, you squash it immediately. You're a parent, right? No, I'm not. Oh, okay. I, I misunderstood. Uh, do you have young nieces or nephews or? I have no nieces. I have no nieces or nephews. I have young cousins, and I I deal with little kids all the time and coaching hockey. Oh right, right. Okay. So how do you deal with that? I mean, because kids are not only are they sponges, but they're such parrots. They don't know what they're saying. Um, I've been again. I've been very lucky that we have a good group of kids and family members around them, who we haven't had any of that. The biggest issue we've had is more so just, um dealing with kids who treat the others badly for bad performance or something like that. But again, it, I mean, even before I got there, you know, I came in there and the whole atmosphere was, you know, we're a team, we're all together, you know? And when, it, when something does come up between two players, that's, you know, bad. One of the coaches takes the kid who incited it to the side, or, you know, we take both kids to the side and we talk to them. Um, but again, I've been extremely lucky in the sense we haven't had any kind of racial things come up. And we have a few African-American kids on the team. We have some Indian kids. We also have some Asian kids as well on the team. And, but the kids love each other. The kids adore each other. They, you know, even after a hard loss, they know, you know, we've, we've talked to them enough where they get one there to keep each other up. When they were younger, you know, like a two years ago, we had to, you know, kind of pick them up ourselves. But now the kids are picking themselves up. We don't have to do as much when it comes to that. And it's just, I've been lucky in that aspect. I haven't had to deal with that issue yet. Um, what I would do in that issue, I'd, I'd address it. I would talk to the parent, you know, see what's going on there, see if it came from the parent or see if it came from something the kid was exposed to. And then, you know, be with the parent. Well, let the parent probably talk to the kid. And if it happens again, then I have to handle it myself. What are the ages of the kids that you work with? I work with kids between the ages of five and 10 on three separate teams. Oh, that's such a good age range. <laughs> there, I mean, I love, I love the kids. The kids are wonderful. I mean, when I first got in there, I was kind of scared because I, I was just like, you know, I've never had to do this before. But the kids took to me immediately. You know, I was, I'm, I'm one of the younger coaches and I'm 31. So I'm one of the younger coaches and, and I look young for my age. You know, I look like I'm like 25 for Christ's sake. So they see me like, Oh, he's super young. So the kids took to me real quick. And then when I started, you know, messing around and playing with them a little bit, they're like, Oh, he can play too. And so they're all crazy about me because they see me as like the younger cool coach. 
Um, but they also listen and they're good hearted. They're just, they're, oh God, I love them to death. I just, uh, not seeing them in so long has just been a nightmare for me because like I would see, I, I, I cause we had practice Wednesdays and Fridays and it was always a joy just to go out there and just be with them. Yeah. Sometimes they'd be rowdy and they wouldn't really listen to practice, but once you get them calmed down and paying attention, oh, they're just, oh, I love those kids so damn much. But, you know, I feel like it does start at that young age where you're promoting diversity, you're promoting inclusion, because I think it'd be easy to single out a player, especially if somebody's really struggling for whatever reason, um, you know, and be like, oh, it's because of your, your boy or because you're, you know, you're, you're Asian or your family is, is black or, you know, so it, it's, it's real easy to go from zero to 60, as it were. So I think it really helps that you're starting at such a young age and you're, you're, you're promoting that inclusion. Okay, if you have a bad day, that's okay. Everybody has bad days. We have to talk to each other and, and support each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Completely agree with you. All right. Well, I think we've exhausted all topics of inclusion and diversity in the NHL and, and in the hockey community. And in our communities as well, just our general communities. Yeah, no, I think we, I mean, we bounced around a good bit and we kind of circled back on some things, but I think we did a, a solid job and on trying to cover the issue at hand, how hockey's handled it to a certain extent and the issues that permeate in hockey that make change and certain things move at a glacial pace. You know, I will see this to end the show. Good riddance to Don Cherry and his ilk. The more yeah, we get rid yeah. of the Don Cherries of the world, the better it will be. The less people who have major platforms to spout xenophobic, racist, hateful, homophobic rhetoric, I think the better our favorite, I don't know if it's your favorite, but <laughs> since we cover it so much in depth, the better hockey can become. The better mm-hmm. our communities can be. Mm-hmm. Nope, I... I agree with you there, girl. 100%. <laughs> well, thanks so much for joining me. Um, can people follow you on Twitter? Yeah, they can follow me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Matt Estevez. Estevez is spelled E-S-T-E-V-E-S-S-B-N. All right. So that is Matt from Raw Charge. Thank you so much for joining me today, Matt. Robin, thank you so much for having me. You have a great day. You too. All right.